Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, we have all heard in the news, um, particularly fairly recently with Ferguson and just uh, all the different uh, examples of these issues that are happening pretty much almost every day, or so it seems, in uh, cities all over America. And that is the issue of um, police profiling, and in particular, the question of whether white police officers are profiling and targeting uh, black men. And um, when you read about this, or particularly watch television or hear, listen to radio about this, who do you hear talking about this topic representing the police force? It is typically white policemen who, of course, say, nah, doesn't happen. Now, I'm not saying that I necessarily uh, will believe that it's just a black problem. I mean, and my guest, of course, can, can, uh, will talk about this. But there is a, or it certainly is a black problem, but it is also a problem of um, lots of other people, the Hispanics in L.A., for example, um, mentally ill all over the place. Uh, there is a problem. The problem is that police officers are not, um, are not, are, are shooting too quickly, are using force too quickly. Now, of course, that's my opinion. My guest will actually give you the real scoop because he is a black former police officer, and he is uh, going to tell us what really goes on behind closed doors and um, on, the, on the issue of racial, racial profiling and more. So I'd like to introduce Vincent Hill. Uh, he is an Army veteran, a retired police officer, uh, and currently a private investigator. He's also the author of a true crime series, Playbook to a Murder, an Incomplete Pass, and we're going to be talking about that as well. So welcome to the show, Vincent. Did I already say things that offended you? Oh, I'm <laughs> offended just... totally, totally. No, uh, <laughs> thanks for having me, Dr. Kira. I appreciate it. Well, what, what do you think? Well, first of all, you were a police officer from when to when? This was in Nashville, Tennessee, right? Correct. I was on the department from 2002 until uh, 2006, so a little over four and a half years, right at five years. And you left, um, I understand, because you wanted to be able to be, a, you were a single dad and you wanted to be able to spend more time with your children? Absolutely. I was uh, raising my 10-year-old daughter at the time by myself, so, you know, that's not really conducive to being out chasing bad guys at midnight, so it was time yeah. to be dad, so... Yes. Well, that was, that was very responsible of you. Um, so, okay. So, and, and now, so it was a, what do you think? I mean, I'm sure obviously you're still in uh, contact with um, your colleagues. And, and what, how do you process the news? When you hear about things like Ferguson, or we're going to be talking about um, the current brouhaha with actor Isaiah Washington, um, and and some of the remarks that he made. But but let's looking at the at the topic in a general sense. When you when you're in your car and you hear on the radio some another example of a white police officer shooting a black man, what goes through your mind? Well, you know, I don't look at every case as being you know a white officer uh, on a, a, a black male suspect. 
usually when I see videos on Facebook, you know, where people have posted, uh, you know, police brutality or even in the Michael Brown case, you know, I don't, I don't look at it as strictly a white officer shooting a black kid. You know, I look at all the circumstances of what led to uh, the shooting. So uh, that's how I look at most cases, you know, having been, you know, on the inside, uh, looking now from the outside in, I can see it from both, both angles. Uh-huh. But, I mean, does it, so do you, does, does it make you angry, though, when you hear about that? Do you think, I mean, do you suspect, before all the information is in, do you suspect that it's more likely than not that the officer um, either was racial profiling or he just, he just jumped too quickly to use uh, deadly force? No, it doesn't. It doesn't make me angry simply because I like to gather facts before I make assumptions. And again, having been in that particular position, having pulled my gun on many male black suspects in my career, you know, you can't look at it as okay, this was a color thing. You have to look at it. Okay, what led to the events of this escalation? So, and as far as as profiling goes, uh, profiling is probably the basis of police and. and Profiling gets a bad rap when race is brought into the, the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, you know, if I was patrolling the, the projects of East Nashville and saw a license plate that was out of county or out of state and there were uh, two white individuals in that car, you know, the police in me would say, okay, they're likely here buying drugs, they're up to no good, so I'm going to mm-hmm. find a reason to try to stop this vehicle. So profiling is probably the basis of police work. It just gets degraded when the word racial is is thrown into it. Yes, yes, that's true. I mean, I mean that's sort of the basis of a lot of your work. Um, I mean, in order to protect yourself, to protect the public, to to know which who who are the likely bad guys and not wasting time or not missing something, right? Correct. So um, I know we've become. It, it, it is. It does get a bad name by that, um, and yet certainly as a PI, as a as a private detective, private investigator, certainly that's the basis of your work too. Um, profiling of all, you know, for all, uh, knowing which way this to um, the the investigation is likely to find um, what you're looking for, right? Exactly, exactly, and definitely in law enforcement, that's. That's how you make your career. That's how you can go to, from finding just a traffic ticket to finding 10 kilos of cocaine in the, in the trunk of a car. Yes, yes. So, um, you know, one of the things that I think has been a really unfortunate uh, fallout of this, I mean, it's great that people are, are looking into it and paying more attention and checking into, you know, weeding out the bad apples in the police force, but... Um, but don't you think that it has sort of a it has had a backlash or a, a, a negative fallout in the sense that now because um, well I mean it's kind of died down somewhat now but but when there were all these riots um, or when when police were being shot at like in New York um, it made police more fearful and more likely to jump for their gun. And and kill somebody or hurt somebody um, than before. Do you know what I'm saying? That it's exactly. kind of it became a vicious cycle. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. And and not only you know reaching for the guns you know at a more rapid rate. I mean, 
even in New York uh, that you mentioned it, you know, the response rate went down tremendously. Mm. And, you know, that's, you know, equated to, hey, I want to go home at the end of the night. And if I take this call and I may get shot at, you know, I don't know if I want to take that chance. So really the public became less safe. Correct. Exactly. So anytime you you look at officers, you know, back in 2001 who ran to a falling building to now they don't want to answer a call because they're in fear of their life, you know, that speaks volumes. You know, uh-huh. you run into a building that's burning that a plane hit, but you don't want to patrol your neighborhoods because either A, you're going to get shot at, B, you may have to shoot someone and be accused of being a racist. You know, it's just a whole bunch of factors in policing these days that I don't think the average citizen takes into account. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I never understood and still don't understand is why there isn't more training of police officers to shoot people in a way that wouldn't kill them, like, um, <laughs> you know, shoot them in their leg or shoot well, their hand holding the gun or, do you know what I mean, rather than shooting to kill. Well, you know, it's funny, and, and I tell people this all the time because I've been asked this question countless times. You know, yeah. at, at any police department in the world, and you can go, or should, I should say in the U.S., go to their police academy and ask for the target that has legs and arms. <laughs> you won't find it because police are trained to shoot two center mass, and if the suspect is still coming, fire a shot to the head. That's training. So when you're dealing with incidents like Michael Brown, for instance, and the, the shot to the head. That was in Officer Wilson's training, and it becomes muscle memory. I mean, to mm-hmm. this day, I could pull a gun out of a holster, and I guarantee I'm going to aim center mass and then one to the head because that's how I'm trained. It's in my muscle memory. So uh, there is no training for shoot to the leg or shoot to the arm, and you have to think also. If a suspect approaches you with deadly force, you're not supposed to respond with less than lethal force because, again, that officer has to go home that day. So at the end of the day, if a suspect approaches you with lethal force or if it escalates to a shooting, it's not usually going to end well for the person on the receiving end. Well, so is there any kind of a movement, do you know, any kind of to to have training that isn't just um, to the chest? Well, I know that you know, there's countless groups that always always talk about it. Uh, but again, these are groups that have never once worn a uniform or had to pull a gun on a uh, on a suspect or you know even a little kid. You know, you look at a, a Tamir Rice, the 12 year old in, yes. in Cincinnati uh, that was killed by police. Uh, tragic, you know, no doubt it was tragic. I think there was some training as far as how they approached him that would have saved his life. But as far as what the actions were when they fired the gun, that was all muscle memory. So uh, when, when you look at a case like Tamir Rice, I think had they parked more strategically uh, on their approach or anything like that, it would have ended different. But I don't think anything in the U.S. will ever change as far as police shooting to, to maim. I mean, that's, that's why they have least, less than lethal weapons such as Aspaton, Taser, Pepper Spray. That's what those are used for. Okay, so but why aren't those used more often? Well, I mean, again, you have to look at there's there's what is called a use of force continuum. Either there's certain steps you go through, which are verbal com- verbal commands, soft, empty hand control, which are just strikes, uh, 
hard empty hand control, which is usually your Aspatan, your pepper spray. There's certain steps you have to go to to escalate into um, pulling your gun. Now, of course, there's certain cases that calls, call for immediately pulling your gun, you know, and it just depends on the officer, depends on the circumstances. Do they believe there's an imminent threat of bodily injury or death if they don't pull their weapon or fire their weapon? So there's several factors that play into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it's really, I mean, but like you were saying, and yes, that was a very sad story about Tamir Rice. I mean, that little a little boy, <laughs> it just it just seems so, but here a big policeman comes, um, and I mean, I know that they didn't know that the that he had, um, I'm trying to remember now, was it a toy gun? Or it, was it was a, a toy, toy gun. Mm-hmm. It was a toy gun, that's what I thought, right. which of course is really sad, and, and you know, parents, um, I've talked for a long time on how parents should not, um, you know, let their kids either play violent video games or walk outside with toy guns or have toy guns altogether. Um, but so, I mean, it's, it's, that was just so, so horrible. And you think of like a little boy, I mean, he wasn't even, he was 12, but he was kind of small. And, right. um, these big policemen, and regardless of what color, I just, just, it just, it, it just seems so, um, you know, so unfair, so um, criminal that uh, cops would would do that to that. You know that yes, like you were that, that they didn't that they didn't use more strategy or didn't um, do other things that could have gotten would likely have gotten this boy to lay down the gun. Right, but on the flip side to that, I, yeah. I've been in a situation where a youngster had a, a toy gun, and you know these days toy guns look so real. Yes. From 20 feet away, you can't tell it's, it's the real deal. Yes. It, but immediately in Tamir's case, you know, it became a, a white officer, uh, black child thing. And, you know, it was all, all about race. But, you know, the police officer in me, when, when I watched the videotape and he's out there pointing this gun at people in the park, he, A, the first thing that came to my mind is he's lucky someone else didn't shoot him because they thought he was trying to rob them. Hmm. And, and B... We can't excuse the actions he did that got the police caught there. Uh, so would I have handled, handled it different? I don't know because I wasn't there. But at the same time, I could tell you my training would have been to draw my weapon on him, not knowing whether, whether this was a toy gun, a real mm-hmm. gun, or anything like that. I think where the officers messed up is they pulled up right next to Tamir. He had no reaction time. They had no reaction time, and it, it just ended tragically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the current controversy, the thing in the news these days about Isaiah Washington. There's a a story, Isaiah Washington talks driving while black, um, responds to critics who don't think Chris Rock should adapt. So why don't you explain this whole brouhaha? Well, you know, I I watched Isaiah's comments, and, you know, to be honest, I lost all respect for him when, when he said what he said. And Basically, you know, I think Chris Rock was was saying he had been pulled over yet again for driving while black, and and Isaiah's response to that was, well, don't drive an expensive car and uh, get like a Toyota Prius is what he drives, and you know, go out and talk to police and let them know you live in your neighborhood and you know all this other stuff. But you know, I've been stopped, you know, before I was on the police department and while I was on the police department. Huh. And I can tell you the the type of car you drive has nothing to do with whether you're going to get stopped. Uh, I drive a car that most people 
mistake for a Bentley. It's not a Bentley, but they mistake it for that. What is but, it? Uh, it's actually a Hyundai Genesis, and surprisingly, people mistake it for a Bentley. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. but, you know, do I get looks from police? Absolutely, but I'm not going to go out and change the, the vehicle I'm driving just to say, hey, uh, I'll, I'm going to do this so I don't get stopped. I mean, I've backed white officers up that stop uh, black people in Cadillac Escalades and, you know, Ford Pintos, so... You know, if you're going to get stopped, you're going to get stopped. It has nothing to do with what type of vehicle you're in or the year, the shape of it. You're going to get stopped. Uh, you know, are there officers out there that look to pull people over for certain vehicle types? Absolutely. But Isaiah Washington's comments were just ridiculous, period. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the implication is that if a black person is driving an expensive-looking car that they must have stolen it. Yeah, stolen it or, you know, getting or, their money through drug proceeds yeah. or, you know, something like that. And, yeah. you know, I, I work hard just like, you know, everyone else in America. And, you know, I'm afforded certain things, so I'm going to drive exactly what I want. You know, if I get pulled over by police, I know how to handle it accordingly. Um, you know, I think, you know, with everything that's going on in the society today, I think that's part of the problem. People don't know how to deal with police accordingly, and we'll address that later on in the show. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, and this is a perfect, uh, hearing the music that we have to take a break, this is a perfect spot to do that. When we come back, we'll talk more with my guest, Vincent Hill. He is um, an Army veteran, a retired police officer, a private investigator, and he's also the author of the true crime series, Playbook to a Murder, An Incomplete Pass. And as a black man, he is giving us the inside scoop. One of the things I want to talk about when we get back is um, your childhood. You have this really um, very, very grounded, reasoned attitude to all of this. And I, I wonder if some of that had to do with the fact that you didn't have um, much prejudice against you when you were young. I may well be wrong. <laughs> we'll hear when we come back. <laughs> so stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs 
that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, here with Vincent Hill, uh, talking about um, the... is giving us the real scoop of what goes on behind closed doors um, by being a former police officer, a black and former police officer, um, and also a private investigator and uh, the author of a true crime series that we'll talk about a little later. But right now, before the break, I was saying, <laughs> yeah, what are the chances that, um, I mean, Vincent, you're not jumping on a soapbox, you know, complaining about all these white cops shooting black people. Um, so obviously you have had a very reasoned, um, well, a reasoned childhood, a reasoned, you think, in a very reasonable manner. Um, and so that led me to, <laughs> to <laughs> hypothesize that you uh, didn't have any or didn't have uh, too much prejudice when you were younger, which of course is kind of a ridiculous assumption for, any, <laughs> for anyone <laughs> growing up in America. Um, a black person growing up in America to have to not have experienced any prejudice. So tell us about your childhood. Well, you know, I I grew up. My my father was military, so you know I hopped around pretty much everywhere every three years. Um, mm. You know, born in Germany, and you know lived everywhere from Kansas, you know Texas, Illinois, Wisconsin. Uh, I actually went to high school in Wisconsin, and I'll never forget this. And it still never swayed me from wanting to be, become an officer of the law. I was late for a track meet, and I was obviously speeding. There's, there's no doubt about it. So I get pulled over, and this white officer, Milwaukee police officer, yanks me out of the car and immediately puts me in handcuffs and, and throws me in the, in the back seat of the car. You know, he doesn't say, hey, I stopped you because you're speeding, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And he just starts searching my car. And, of course, hmm. you know, he doesn't find anything. And he's like, well, where are you speeding? Where are you running from? I said, huh. well, sir, I'm actually late for a track meet, and I'm <laughs> in my track uniform. I said, so I made a joke. I said, I'm not really running from anything. I said, I'm trying to get there so I can run and win this race. And, you know, he just thought I was being just, just this smart kid. And, huh. you know, he held me up for like 20 minutes. So I ended up meeting or missing my, my uh, track meet. And, uh, you know, it really set in like, wow, this was like – I had, you know, seen racist comments or heard racist comments growing up, but this this one actually stuck in like, okay, yes, I know I was speeding, but, you know, there's this whole thing of probable cause and explaining why I was stopped and searching my car with my consent versus just yanking me out mm-hmm. of the car and searching it anyway. So, yeah, I, I definitely wouldn't say I wasn't a victim of, of prejudice growing up because I definitely was. So... Um, is that when you decided you wanted to be a police officer? No, actually, it's it's funny. I, it was long before that. It's when uh, Miami Vice came out, and okay. you know you had Crockett and Tubbs, and I just thought those were the coolest guys in the world. So I, I thought that was the job I wanted to do. And then I watched uh, Lethal Weapon with Danny Glover and 
and Mel Gibson, and I saw Danny Glover. Here's this black man, you know, dressed in a nice suit, and he's doing positive stuff. And I said, that's definitely huh. what I want to do. So you know, it just kind of stuck with me from, from, you know, years before. So, and when this experience happened with this white officer, did, did that sort of um, make you want to do it all the more to sort of make sure that these kinds of things didn't happen or for you to not be like that? Absolutely. I, I told myself I would never be that guy, you know, to uh-huh. just <laughs> pull someone out of their car it, for speeding. You know, it's just, it'd be different if I was in a stolen car and, you know, he was doing what he was supposed to do on a felony stop, but I was in my dad's 1987 Ford Escort. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to Isaiah's point, it didn't matter if I was in a Ford Escort or a Mercedes E350. I got pulled <laughs> over and I got profiled by that police officer. So. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, yes, I was mentioning to you off the air about this really fun, um, and I'm glad that you thought it was fun, too. I didn't know if it was insensitive. I mean, I don't see how, I mean, with Chris Rock doing it, it's hard to take offense. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. A lot of people probably take offense to some of the things. But, and in fact, he was... Um, I mean, that was part of the whole thing with um, with Isaiah that Isaiah Washington that uh, that he in his in his uh, tweet um, he wrote he wrote I sold my ninety thousand dollar Mercedes G five hundred and bought three Priuses because I got tired of being pulled over by police hashtag adapt at Chris Rock and um, and so people got angry thinking that he was trying to tell Chris Rock and everybody else that you should just, uh, well, everybody else who's black, that you should just um, suck it up and, uh, and, and do something so that you don't get pulled over, right? Right. So, but, so Chris Rock did this, educate, what he called an educational video, how not to get your ass kicked by the police. And he gives <laughs> these tips, and they're really good tips, but the way that he um, illustrates them, you, you just have to laugh. I mean, you know, it makes it's sense, Rock. obviously. <laughs> right. What? It's Chris Rock, yeah, so right. you have to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he says, um, obey the law. The laws are, to take, take the laws like a hint, like um, when someone says to you, I wouldn't do that shit if I were you. <laughs> um, then he gives us an example, you know, obviously you shouldn't, you shouldn't, certain crimes you shouldn't do, and then he says, um, if you jump through a turnstile, um, you know, you might get a pass by a policeman, maybe just a ticket or something, but if you jump through the turnstile with a gun and a joint, <laughs> that you're going to get your ass kicked. I'm, I'm <laughs> quoting Chris Rock here, unless people think that I'm being overly crude. <laughs> and then um, stop when you see fat flashing police lights in your mirror. Um, and he talks about Rodney King not having done that. Well, you know, I actually interviewed Rodney King. Really? I had I spent um, oh, I don't know maybe like ten hours with Rodney King in a hotel room, and no, it wasn't what you were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was interviewing him, doing a psychiatric evaluation for a uh, script that someone was writing. I was the, like a technical consultant to the script. And someday I'm going to write about this because, you know, people to this day do not have Rodney King write. I mean, it was really sad that, um, that uh, what happened to him. And he talked about, one of the things he talked about was how when he was a little kid and went with his father to, um, to uh, a dam um, in L.A., and um, he remembered the experience of uh, they were going fishing. 
Mm-hmm. And one, uh, all of a sudden, his father saw flashing lights, and his father stopped. But um, the police gave him a ticket, and were, they were really rude to him. And I don't remember off the top of my head what, the, what his father was doing, if anything, but um, it was the police harassing him. And right. so when, when that happened to Rodney King, when Rodney King, you know, years later, grew up, and he sees these flashing lights, um, the memory of the police stopping his father and harassing him and, and pushing him around and so on um, came to his mind. And so, of course, he ran. And it, the whole thing was just, I mean, he was actually there not doing anything wrong or bad, but, um, I mean, not, not anything that he should have gotten beaten up for. Right. Um, and he was actually there celebrating something. He, he went back to the spot in Handsome Dam, Handsome Dam in, in Los Angeles. He went back to the spot because something good had happened in his life, and he was sort of reliving, um, you know, his father had died by then, and he was reliving these moments with his father. And, and then, you know, at that moment, ironically, that same night, you know, just a little while after he leaves the dam, this happens with the police. So, oh, wow. Yes, it's, it's, it was really a, really a sad story. He was, he was really a sweet guy. He got taken advantage of, exploited um, by so many people after this happened and, and, uh, and you know, when he won some money um, mm. from his lawsuit and so on, and he just all of a sudden people came out of the closets and they were just uh, taking advantage of him and exploiting him right and left. And he just wanted everybody to get along. Right. Can't we all just get along? Please? Yes. Right, exactly. So. Yeah. So anyhow, so, so Chris Rock, his tip was to stop when you see flashing police lights because if the police have to run to get you, you know you're going to get your ass kicked. Well, <laughs> and he has this funny, um, <laughs> funny uh, dramatization of that. Right. Well, I, I would definitely agree with, with Chris Rock. Um, doesn't always end with someone getting their ass whooped, at least you know when, when I was patrolling. But if I turn my blue lights on, my expectation is for you to stop. And if you don't, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to chase you. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, to Chris Rock's point, yeah, if you see blue lights, absolutely stop because you've already de-escalated the situation. And, and also the idea that if the police have to run after you, they're going to get their <laughs> adrenaline going and be, you know, be all the more upset that they've had to chase you um, for however long. Right. It, it definitely gets the adrenaline up, you know, but... I live by the the old saying: once the handcuffs are on, the fight is over. So mm. you know, if if I've got that suspect handcuffed, then that's it. There's no more hitting. There's no more punching. You know, that that's when you start getting these cases of police brutality and was it racial? And you know, a lot of times, again, having been on the inside, it's not necessarily racial. It's that adrenaline that you know this guy actually ran from me. I'm the police. Who are you to do this to me? So uh-huh. right. So you know, something that can be perceived as being racial has nothing to do with race. It has to do with that adrenaline. I gave you a direct order. You disobeyed that direct order. Then you made me chase you. Then you may have tried to push me off of you. So, yeah. Yeah, so all of those things kind of escalate. Mm-hmm. Um, he also talks about turn off the loud rap music, be polite, put your, keep your hands on the wheel, um, do, do not have a, allow a crazy friend to be in your car. Um, <laughs> one that's going to bring dr- a gun or drugs or has a warrant out for his arrest. And if a policeman stops you, then tell your friend to shut 
up. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, yeah. I think he used another term, but yeah, exactly. Yes, right. <laughs> right. Blank so, up. <laughs> yeah. Blank. So, but but absolutely. I mean, you know, when I approach a vehicle, you know, I don't expect to hear, you know, whether it's rap music, country music, whatever music. <laughs> if I approach the vehicle to talk to you and explain to you why I stopped, a, it's disrespectful for you to blast your music, you know, and. I have been in those traffic stops where it's actually the passenger that has gotten everyone in trouble because they're mm. the one over there, you know, running that yapper. And, you know, the minute I ask for their ID, it's like, why the heck do you need my ID, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Well, because the law says I can investigate anyone that's inside this vehicle that's detained right now. So, mm. yeah, so to Chris... Chris's point, yeah, absolutely. You know, tell your friends to shut up because they may get you in a world of trouble because then if I arrest someone out of that vehicle, say it is the passenger, I still have a legal right to search that vehicle, search incident to arrest. So let's say I do find a gun or some drugs. Then you just got everyone in trouble because you wouldn't shut up. So Uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. And then he says, if you are going to allow a friend in your vehicle, get a white friend. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, to your point also, um, don't allow a mad woman, a woman who's mad at you, to be in your vehicle um, because she'll say things, you know, because if she's mad at you, she wants you to get your ass kicked, and she'll say things like, um, he got, he's got weed. He's got weed. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well... Well, there still has to be that probable cause of, of uh, you know, believing there's weed in there. And, of course, that, that would be probable cause. But, you know, at the same time, you know, if the officer's smart, he's not going to take everything at face value. You know, he's going to question, well, why is she just coming out that he's got weed in the car? You know, because that old saying, possession is nine-tenths of the law. So, okay, it was in the center console, and both of you guys yeah. were in arms reach to the center console, so you're both going to jail. So, uh-huh. you know, that mad woman may actually get herself in trouble if she tries that. <laughs> so, uh-huh, uh-huh. Right. Um, well, let's see. What, um, well, well, one thing that we were talking about on the break was I was saying that, um, you know, because of this increased tension on both sides, you know, people being angry at the police and, and having protests, and you were talking about police being m- less willing to go out into uh, on calls that are sort of questionable, um, it's also when, when p- the general public gets stopped, um, you know, no matter what your color is or your race is, um, because there are so many stories in the news about police, uh, you know, being brutal um, to to whoever they're chasing after or whoever they're, you know, whatever the situation is, it makes people um, become afraid. Like, even if you're in a car and you're being stopped and theoretically, you know, you know you're speeding or you know you went through a red light or, or you know you probably did something wrong, it's still more scary these days than it used to be because you don't know if you're just going to get a ticket or you're going to get, you know, something, or you're going to get injured or killed. Well, I don't think it's any more scary than it was for me when I got stopped. Uh, I don't want to tell my age, but that that stop in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, you know, it's just a natural reaction for anybody, black, white, Chinese, or whatever, once they see blue lights behind them, like, okay, what did I do? Did I do a California stop? Is my license expired? Is my registration expired? Right. Okay, what's going on? So that that fear factor is is always there. 
I think what what happens is, and you know, I'm going to say this, and I'm probably going to tick a whole bunch of people off, but the truth is the truth. I think what happens is, especially in in the black community, is, and I've seen it personally, where from you know a small age, black kids are taught not a not to trust the police, not to respect the police, or any of this. So when you start seeing these these videos on Facebook where you know, someone's getting their window smashed out, uh, like in Indiana, because, you know, he didn't want to roll the window down. He argued with the officer. He did this. You know, that stuff goes a, a long way into what actually causes these situations to escalate. Mm-hmm. The biggest thing that will keep you, A, not going to jail or not getting hurt in a traffic stop is simple compliance. So, if I were to pull you over, Dr. Carroll, and I said, hey, ma'am, I need to see your license and registration, my expectation would be that you would provide your license and, expect, and, and registration. The minute you don't, the cop mind in me is going to say, this person has something to hide. So it's going to be my objective to get this person out of the car any way I can. So if I have to smash your window, I'm going to smash your window. Hmm. If I have to pull you out of said window, I'm going to pull you out of said window. So what we need to start teaching, especially in, in the black community, again, I, I've seen it, I've lived it, is A, to respect the police, and B, to comply with police. So you may not agree, and I'm not saying that um, police are always right, I'm not saying that at all, because that would be foolish to say that, because there are officers out there that just go around hunting people, black, white, or whatever, but you may not agree with what they're asking you to do. But doing it will get you a long way. And file that complaint later. Oh, you think your civil rights are violated? Go see that officer's captain. File that complaint. Mm-hmm. There's steps that you can do, you know, if you feel you actually have a grievance. But to do it there on the scene will will never end well. Never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really a problem. It's kind of, um, as we were saying, a vicious cycle. It It's hard to... I agree with you, what you're saying about... Um, I mean, it used to be that way that uh, for all races that, you know, you get the night, the friendly policeman comes to your kindergarten or first right. grade or, you know, elementary exactly. school class and, and, you know, oh, Mr. Policeman, it used to, used to, <laughs> that used to be someone you were taught to go to if you were in any danger. And I, I'm sure in some schools it still is, but, but then people, kids read the headlines or hear the reports on the news and it's hard to keep um, pushing that, that belief. Well, we have to take another break. My guest is Vincent Hill. When we come back, we're going to talk about um, two of his, his, the first two books in his uh, true crime series, Playbook to a Murder, An Incomplete Pass, and um, about an NFL murder um, that he investigated. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. 
Dr. Carroll is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com How do you achieve the utmost success in your life, career, faith, relationships, and more? It's all here in The Business of Living with host Scott Ventrella. Scott has experience as an executive coach, sought-after speaker, and lecturer. He and his guests will offer practical solutions and strategies to help you move to the next level of success no matter where you are in your life and career. The Business of Living airs live every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest is Vincent Hill. He's been telling us, uh, giving us the real scoop on racial profiling, uh, having been a former police officer himself and currently a PI, a private investigator, and um, throughout his life being a black man. (laughs) (laughs) I I started to write a former black police officer. (laughs) That doesn't make sense. Um, He is also an author of a true crime series. He's written two books so far in this true crime series. Playbook to a Murder, and the follow-up book, Incomplete Pass, and both of them um, have to do with the uh, double murder, suicide, you tell us, um, of Steve McNair, who um, was Nashville's uh, biggest hero, and and that's where um, Vincent was, uh, worked on the police force, and, and also still does PI work there. So... Tell us about what. Well, first of all, you know, I can see why that would fascinate you. Of course, if that's the biggest hero, tell us who Steve McNair was. Remind us and tell us. You know, you obviously to write two books about this. <laughs> you did a lot of. Um, well, this was in two thousand and nine, so this is when you had your PI hat on. So tell us about it. Yeah, Steve McNair is a country boy from Collins, Mississippi, but he ended up uh, signing with back then the Houston Oilers. Uh, the NFL team as quarterback, and of course Houston moved to Nashville, became the Tennessee Titans, uh, so he was the Titans quarterback. He also did a stint with Baltimore Ravens uh, before he retired in 2008. Uh, then Steve was actually killed uh, about six months later, July 4th of 2009. He was killed in a small condo in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was written up by my old department as a murder-suicide, and the reason it was written up as a murder-suicide, his um, mistress um, was also found dead with Steve. There was a gun found at the crime scene, and hence the murder-suicide. But uh, the more I started listening to the story and the facts of the case, uh, my conclusion was that it was not a murder-suicide, and you know, there's 
just a, a ton of evidence and facts that the public was not privy to that are inside uh, my books. I wrote Playbook to a Murder uh, shortly and after it happened. And, you know, if Dr. Carol Field asked 20 years ago, would I write a book, I would have told you, no way, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I started speaking out about the case. I did some local news there in Nashville, the local NBC, and through that dateline, NBC actually called and wanted to do a story on it. So I flew to New York, told this wonderful story to Lester Holt, you know, about an hour and a half interview. And, you know, I told everyone in the world I knew, you know, <laughs> to watch the show and you know we watch the show and they show me for 20 seconds saying it wasn't a crime of passion and i didn't trust my old police chief because he would fudge stats which i did say that because <laughs> oh well okay a year and a half later guess what he got investigated for fudging stats so oh, what, really? I, what i said was true but that wasn't the whole premise of of the interview and right. you know I read the the blogs after the show and everyone's like well we don't care what Eddie George who used to play with Steve had to say because he was on the show and some lady that deals with athletes was on the show saying how athletes cheat and you know everyone's like we wanted to hear what this ex-cop had to say mm -hmm. you know so I said hmm I guess the best way to tell the story is to put it in writing so uh, I started uh Playbook to a Murder. I had so many different titles. Well, wait, wait. Um, now, the, the story that came out, I mean, before you started your own investigation, was that it was, now, this, as you said, this was a mistress. The woman who was found with him was a mistress. And she sure. was, I mean, the news was, what I understood of the story, was that she was um, a, um, a, well, I wrote a book called Bad Girls, <laughs> Why Men Love Them and How Good Girls Can Learn Their Secrets. And so I define, I define 12 different types of bad girls, and one of them is a bad girl scorned. And right. so I um, uh, talked about how she was a bad girl scorned because apparently she found out that not only was he cheating on his wife with her, but he was cheating on her with some other woman. So uh, the story seemed to be, or my understanding was that she shot him and then killed herself because she felt like he was going to be, uh, he had started, in fact, sort of rejecting her. I was reading about how um, he didn't go... They had well. You can talk about that, but but that I just want to set set what the original story was yeah. just yeah. to remind people. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and that's you said it best. The story that was told that you know okay. she shot Steve McNair then herself. But in your professional background, what I will tell you is, a she had no motive because no matter what police say, Steve had given her two thousand dollars that day that she deposited into her account. I've interviewed countless of her friends, roommates, that said Steve would give her three or $4,000 a week like clockwork. So one of the motives Nashville police said she had was money. That's out of the question. The other was that she was worried about a DUI. But everyone I've interviewed, and as well as police, said she was not concerned about the DUI because the attorney that got Steve off his DUI was going to get her off. So, you know, for for... You to expect me to believe that this young girl who had never owned a gun in her life, who had just got $2,000 cash three hours before she died, who had no plans of seeing Steve McNair that night, which is documented in text messages and phone calls, and I have her phone records, supposedly bought a gun at 6 o'clock that Friday night, knew enough about guns to shoot Steve McNair twice in the chest and once in each temple and then kill herself. is impossible. So... 
I touch on a lot of this in Playbook to a Murder, but I get more in detail and incomplete pass on who had the real motive, who had the most to gain, who got all the money after Steve's death. So it surely wasn't this little girl that was, you know, getting thousands of dollars a week. I mean, I equate that to if I was dating Oprah Winfrey and I said I, I had money problems, I'd be a fool to say I had money problems when I'm dating a multimillionaire. Whether she's seeing Stedman, whether she's seeing whoever she wants to see, I don't have any money problems. So the minute you take the supposed well, how gun would sale, she? I mean, why? Was, he, was she in his will, or how would she have gotten money if he died? Or she, That's your point, that she wouldn't have. Uh, do you mean the mistress? Yes. Right. She, she had nothing to, to gain by killing Steve. She, she needed Steve alive for her lifestyle. I mean, look at the things Steve was doing for her. He got her a, a Cadillac Escalade. Uh, you know, right oh, before her birthday. Okay, but if she, but wait, 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 wait. <laughs> but if she thought that she was kind of at the end of his, but that, um, right, right. I get what you're saying. He was going to be going on to some other girl, but, and he wasn't really, he wasn't madly in love with her anymore. Or he liked someone else. But he was ready to go on to the next one and discard her. I get what you're saying. She wouldn't have gotten money but, and and the lifestyle, and and also, you know, the emotions, the rejection. Make that makes people do things impulsively. There, there, there was no rejection because I've interviewed people close to Steve and her, which I can tell you, they will tell you the same thing. There was no rejection there, and the biggest piece of this case mm-hmm. is there was a guy by the name of Adrian Gilliam who claims he sold the gun to her at Dave and Buster's at Opry Mills Mall in Atlanta. First, the gun sale date was Thursday, then it got changed to Friday once that got contradicted by the manager then got changed to Friday. Here's the big problem. I've talked to the manager from that night. She's given me a sign affidavit that says Sahel Kazemia did not leave her post at 6 o'clock to go buy a gun. Her phone records show she was on the phone with Steve McNair, the guy that police say she was supposedly scared was leaving her at the time of the gun sale, and there are 156 cameras in Arpey Mills parking lot. Five of those cameras face where she would have walked out and got in the car to buy a gun. No video footage, and this is documented from Opry Mills Security. There's no video footage of a gun sale, and the guy that supposedly sold her the gun was in prison for murder and armed robbery in the state of Florida for 10 years. And you got Steve McNair, who was worth upwards of $90 million, found with $7 okay, in Okay, so wallet. who do you think it was? Obviously, you've come to the other conclusions. I don't know if you're going to share it with us, but are we, are we leading up to the wife shooting him because he had an affair? Well, I wouldn't say the wife shot him. I can tell you if you read Incomplete Pass, available <laughs> on Amazon.com, um, there are a lot of dots that are connected with who knew who, who went to whose church, who had motive, who said certain things right before Steve died, you know, all of these things. And even Adrian Gilliam himself, who supposedly sold the gun, in his recorded interview on July 24th of 2009, told police at the time of the murders, he called her at 12.02. He was the last person to call Sahel besides Steve McNair. He called her at 12.02 a.m. He called her 14 times that day. He told detectives, I can't remember all these other calls. I don't know what we talked about. I don't know. I don't know. But when they asked about the 12.02 call, he knew he spoke to her for exactly three minutes, which is confirmed by phone records. Oh, I talked to her for three minutes. Then I went back to my friend Tony Smith's house for two hours. This is the time of the murders. This is the time frame of the murders. Three days later, Nashville police go to Tony Smith's house. Hey, was Adrian Gilliam here uh, Friday night? 
into Saturday morning, July 4th? No, he wasn't here. Are you sure? Because he said you were, he was here, and you sent him to the store to get some uh, Crown Royal and Coke. Yeah, that was the day after. And that was the day police came to his house and said, hey, we're here to talk to you about this gun. So the main guy in this case that supposedly sold the gun gave a fake alibi uh-huh. during the time of the murders, but you expect me to believe this was a murder-suicide. Okay. Steve so McNair you... was shot execution style. Uh-huh. So have you? So what is the status of this case with the um, Nashville police? Well, officially, the case is, has, is closed, and it was closed in a record three days when you're dealing with two bodies, which I don't understand at all, two dead bodies. Mm-hmm. You, you talk to one guy the day after the murders, oh, I sold the gun to a girl whose name I don't know. Then, you know, t- 20 days later, his phone records come back, and you've texted her 200 times. You talk to her a record 48 times and 14 times that day but yet the case is closed as a murder-suicide. Um, but the official case is, is closed. Um, I did attempt to go to the grand jury in 2010. Of course, they said I didn't have any physical evidence, and my argument was, well, you guys haven't released any of the crime scene photos, which should be public record now, so what are you hiding? Uh, I can tell you I'm working with the district attorney. I can't disclose anything that's really going on with that mm-hmm. as far as the case, but... Yeah, it's definitely still my hope for both families to get the case reopened. Um, And I I think it speaks volumes. The very first time I met Steve McNair's mother, she looked at me and she said, I will never believe this little girl killed my son. And Mm -hmm. usually it's the reverse. The victims Mm -hmm. usually believe anything the police say. Mm -hmm. But for Steve McNair's mother to tell the police her son was robbed because for him to only have $7 on him, she hasn't known that for 20 years. He had mm-hmm. millions. She said, no, you mean 7000 No, ma'am, I mean $7. She said, no, you mean 7000 mm-hmm. And I can tell you for a fact that Steve went to the bank that day and t- had taken out almost $5,000. He gave her two. So there's at least $3,000 that's unaccounted for. Mm. The, the Rolex watch that Steve McNair had on that night is not in his property. His chain that he had on that night is not in his property. We know Sahel Kazemi didn't take it. We know Sahel Kazemi didn't have a motive. She had no plans of seeing Steve until 10 o'clock that night because here's what happened. She was supposed to go out with one of, two of her coworkers. One called and said, hey, I'm still in Memphis. I've interviewed that coworker. She said, yep, I called her at this time. At 10.20, she texts Steve, hey, let's go have drinks. But Nashville police want us to believe at 6 o'clock she purchased a gun to kill the person she never even planned to see that night. Hmm. Impossible. Amazon.com, playbook to a murder, and it can be fast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Go check it out, Amazon.com. Uh, again, the books are called Playbook to a Murder, and the follow-up one is Incomplete Pass. Uh, that's a great title because it shows you know, you're, you're going around again to add more facts to the first book. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Vincent Hill, for um, being on Dr. Carol's Couch, really, and being so honest and uh, telling us like it is. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 